Well, again, it's good to be here with you. And um, as Alan introduced me, he introduced me as um, Pastor Tom. But of course, you can guess that my real name, my official name, is Thomas. And uh, today I'm going to talk about Thomas, two Thomases, the Thomas in the Bible that Myron just uh, talked to us about, and also myself named Thomas, because we have a lot of things actually in common. What you may not know, though I met another Thomas this morning, Thomas is the ninth most popular name according to social security records for males in the United States of America. So we're very popular. But the Thomas in the Bible, as you may not know, uh, it hardly ever appears. He only is mentioned um, uh, 11 times, unusually by name. And when he, in our, in our times today, is thought about, we always think of him as doubting Thomas. Of course, that doesn't come from the Bible, but it comes from uh, the occasion that Myron just told us about when he doubted that uh, Jesus' hands and his side were, that he had actually been killed and raised from the dead. So today we're going to talk about Thomas in the Bible, and interestingly, in many ways, I am like Thomas in the Bible. But I'd like to start with a statement that um, I think uh, is kind of outrageous, but I'm going to make it, and then I'm going to try to defend it, and then you can decide for yourself whether or not I have succeeded. Here's my statement. I believe that one of our major problems as human beings in our world today is that we have too little doubt and too much faith. We have too little, what I'm going to call honest doubt, and we have way too much superficial faith. Let me try to explain. We in this society readily assume that almost everything we see on the internet is true. That is ignorant. We commonly accept political correctness as if it's the gospel. And that is not true either. We, like a bunch of lemmings, follow various cultural and political pied pipers, and there's no reason in the world we should be following them. We follow fads without ever thinking through whether those fads make any sense at all. We make radical commitments with very little forethought. We regularly turn off our minds and allow the media to manipulate what we think. We let some religious or secular ideology exact huge sacrifices from us without adequate evidence of truthfulness. We worship celebrities, and we give them almost infallible qualities. We have way too much superficial faith and way too little honest doubt. And so today, I'm going to make a case through Thomas in the Bible and myself, also named Thomas, for honest doubt. Because if we did not have a person like Thomas who would show us how important the benefits of honest doubt, we would not be in the place where we are today. He has given us 
perhaps the greatest proclamation that the world has ever heard that Jesus is risen. When he said, as Myron said with the children, when he saw with his own eyes the resurrected Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God, which to that time, and even today, was probably the greatest statement of the nature of Jesus that had ever been made. He's my Lord and he's my God. So let me introduce to you Thomas. The first three times we meet Thomas in the Bible, he is simply a name because he is one of the 12 people selected by Jesus to be one of his disciples. So we simply have the name Thomas. Here is what is recorded by in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus went up onto a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Bonarges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, um, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about Jesus picking these disciples, but only Luke gives us a little tidbit that's very, very important. This is what Luke wrote. One of those days, Jesus went out into a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. The next morning, he called his disciples to himself and chose 12. So Luke reminds us that Jesus, before he called his disciples, he spent the whole night praying. What did he talk about? We don't know. But certainly, God the Father and God the Son had an extensive conversation about who he would pick to be his disciples. Remember, this is at least a year into Jesus' public ministry. He had hundreds and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who had. But out of that huge group, he picked 12 of them, and one of them was named Thomas. Now, the Bible records that Jesus spent considerable time praying with very important events in his life. Before he called the 12 disciples, he prayed all night long. When Jesus found out, the day that Jesus found out that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been murdered, the Bible says Jesus spent the night praying. Before he was transfigured, he's he, he shone like the sun. Before he did that, before three of his disciples, the Bible tells us that Jesus prayed. And before he was arrested and betrayed and crucified in Gethsemane, he prayed. At the most important junctures of Jesus' life, he spent important time together with God. By the way, Thomas is a Hebrew name or Aramaic name. It means twin. I am not a twin. In Greek, the word Thomas is Didymus. They both are the same word. They both mean twin. Perhaps Thomas had a twin brother. We don't know. Or maybe a, a twin sister. He was probably a twin. But 
What we do know is that this man was selected by Jesus for three things. Did you catch them? The first one, Jesus said, I selected these people so that they could be with me. The most important thing that God wanted to communicate was that he wanted these disciples to spend time with him. But it wasn't enough just to be with Jesus because he wanted them then to be sent out. So he gave them a mission. First of all was the relationship with him. Second was their mission. They were here to do something. In fact, we know that their major assignment was to resemble Jesus and to represent Jesus in the world, which they did extremely well, apart from Judas, as you know. And the third one, God gave them authority. He gave them enablement. He said, you will now be able to have the power even to cast out demons, showing God's incredible power over the evil one. By the way, you here at First Baptist Church are beginning the process of choosing a new pastor. And an obvious lesson from the life of Jesus is you must bathe it in prayer. Why? Because you don't have a clue what's in the heart of any human being. In fact, we don't have a clue what's in our own hearts. How do we think, how do you think that you could possibly pick the next pastor of this church? Do you think you have that kind of insight? You don't. None of us do, but God does. And he knows who it is that this church needs. And so our task is to ask him and be willing to listen to what he says. Well, Thomas, now we're going to find out, he, before the, the, the occasion of the resurrection that, that was brought to us with the children's sermon, Thomas speaks up three times, that's all. And when he does, it is really important. The first one goes like this. Jesus was in Jerusalem. This is toward uh, the end of his life. He was in Jerusalem as he went regularly for the feasts, and he was there for the Feast of Dedication. And while he was there, he was interacting with the religious leaders, as he often did, and he made this outrageous statement. He said, I and the Father am one. Well, if you say that kind of statement to a group of religious leaders in Israel, they picked up stones and were ready to toss them at him. Of course, they didn't toss him. They didn't stone him, but they were ready to because they realized that his statement was blaspheme. He blasphemed God. Because he presumed as a human being to be equal to God. I and the Father are one. And then he gets worse. Because then he says, um, he says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I mean, it gets worse. And that this, they didn't try to stone him. They tried to arrest him and seize him. They didn't succeed in either one. He was neither stoned nor arrested on this occasion, but he did catch the lesson that he better get out of town fast. So he left Jerusalem. He went down one of the steepest places in the world from Jerusalem, about 2,500 feet above sea level, down to the Dead Sea area, 1,500 feet below sea level, the lowest spot on the earth, crossed the Jordan River and went into another territory called Perea. And there he went and hid out. Because the word had gone out in the libraries, in the post offices of Jerusalem, there was his picture on the wall. Arrest this man. He's wanted for blasphemy. 
He's, he's a traitor. He's going to set up rioting in the country. He's dangerous. So Jesus was in another area. While he was in another region, the word came to Jesus that one of his best friends had died. His best friend's name was Lazarus. You see, at the home of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, that's where Jesus went when he was in Jerusalem. That's where he stayed. Apparently, they had a pretty large house. And so he stayed there with his disciples, just a, 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 an hour's walk to Jerusalem from Bethany. Well, this was one of his best friends. And he found out that he was dead. And what did Jesus do? Nothing. For a couple of days. He waited. And of course, we know why he waited. Because he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he wanted it to be crystal clear that Lazarus was in fact dead. This was no resuscitation. He was dead. In fact, he was smelling. His body was starting to decay when Jesus raised him. And so Jesus eventually said that he was going to go to Jerusalem to comfort the family of Mary and Martha and also to do something very interesting because he said to his disciples, Lazarus is asleep and I am going to raise him. Here's what Jesus said. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus tells his disciples, we're going back to Jerusalem. Well, the disciples uh, um, are, uh, you know, they know that that's not very smart, because they know that his poster is, is, on, is on the walls of the city. He's wanted. If he goes there, they're going to arrest him. They tried to stone him. They want to kill him. We can't go there. It's not safe. And now for the first time in the Gospels, Thomas speaks up. Here are his words. Therefore, Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go so we can die with him. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you're laughing. <laughs> now, you know Winnie the Pooh and his friends? <laughs> Who's Thomas? Eeyore, of course. He's Eeyore. I mean, okay, let's go so we can die with him. What does that tell you about him? Well, the, the first thing it, it tells you about him is that... Um, he, he's honest because he's, he's taking seriously what's probably going to happen and in fact does happen. Jesus is going to die and he's in jeopardy too. But do you see his courage? He could have said, hey guys, Jesus, you can go. We're staying here. Do you know what this means? They're going to kill you up there. He didn't say that. He said, let's go. Come on, guys, let's go. They're going to kill him. They're going to kill us too. Let's go. He was a realist. He was a man that knew what was going to happen and he was dead right. But he was also very, very courageous. Thomas knew that following Jesus is not easy. We have lived in this country for a long time now. And to a large degree, it has been easy for us to follow Jesus. 
If you think that's going to be the same in the years ahead, I think you're wrong. I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but I think things are going to change, maybe radically for us. You see, Thomas knew, and because Jesus had said over and over again, to follow me is to take up a cross. You you will be considered, Paul said, fools in your society. Because the cross is foolishness to people who don't understand what's behind it. Thomas was a realist, but he was courageous. You see, courageous realists are in very short supply today in America. We have a lot of people who are courageous, but they're not realistic. And we have people who are realistic, but they run for the hills and they're not courageous at all. But Thomas was both. He was courageous and he was a realist. He was objective. Good luck finding an objective person in America today. They don't exist anymore. Everyone goes to the polar opposites of almost everything. No one can look and see what's right and good about both sides. Thomas was objective. He was a realist and he was courageous. Well, he shows up a second time. This takes place on what's called Maundy Thursday. It's what happened just a couple of days ago. Maundy Thursday is what celebrates the Last Supper. So Jesus was in the upper room with his 12 disciples eating the Passover meal together. And Thomas pipes up the second time. Let me set the scene. Jesus is at the meal, and he's done all kinds of things. He's washed his disciples' feet. He's talked about all kinds of crazy things like that he is the vine and and, and branches and all these things. And then Jesus said, "Uh, I'm going to leave you guys, and I'm going to go to my father's house. And my father's house is beautiful, and I'm going to go there, and I'm going to prepare a place for you guys, and then I'm going to come back and get you, and I'm going to bring you to my father's house. And all the disciples are probably going, okay. And then Jesus says, oh, you guys know you guys know how to get there, and you know where I'm going. And the disciples are going, oh. <laughs> Churches are full of this. A pastor makes a statement. Maybe I use some big theological word, and everyone goes, and you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. You have no clue. But you don't want to act dumb, so no one says anything. You just go, And that's what all the disciples are doing, except Thomas. Thomas is not that way. He's blunt, and he's curious. And he says, hey, Jesus, wait a minute. I I know we're all acting like we know what what you're talking about, but we don't have a clue where you're going. We don't know how you're going to get there. We don't know what you're talking about. That's what Thomas says. Here's the words of Scripture. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? You see, Thomas, um, you've been in in, in rooms, and this happens to me all the time. There's an elephant under the carpet, so big, and no one says anything. You just act like you're ignorant with an elephant under a carpet. It's like if we had an elephant in this room right now, and no one's paying any attention to the elephant. That's ridiculous. 
And then some good soul will say, hey, guys, there's an elephant under the carpet. And you all go, oh, yeah, right. That's Thomas. He, he was willing to, to ask the question everyone had on their minds, but no one was blunt enough to ask it. Thomas would ask the question. And you remember Jesus' answer? What if Thomas hadn't asked the question? We would never have heard these incredible words. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Thomas said. That's what Jesus said. Wow, what if we had missed that line? You see, the church is not like an educational classroom. You see, in an educational classroom as a student, you're often you're reprimanded or you're teased if you ask a stupid question. The church is not like that because there are zero stupid questions. There are none. And in fact, sometimes if you ask what seems to be the stupid question, you're the only one who shows yourself to be courageous because probably other people have it too. We do this in Bible studies all the time. We don't know what they're talking about. We don't know what the Bible means by that. And we just kind of go on and it just goes right over our head. Where are the Thomases? Where are the people say, wait a minute, I don't get that. I don't understand that. How in the world does that apply to my life? It takes a Thomas, maybe one of you, to say, wait a minute. Well, the third time Thomas shows up is really important. Let me set the scheme because this took place on Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday morning, Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, then to a group of women, and then to Peter. All took place on Easter Sunday morning. Remember, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. God's trying to make a statement there. Mary Magdalene, a group of women, and Peter. Easter Sunday afternoon, Jesus appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus. And Easter Sunday evening, Jesus shows up when 10 of the disciples are together in an upper room, hiding with the doors locked. He, now he's in a resurrection body. He defies the laws of physics now. He's not in a physical body, but it's a body that, that is still identifiable. And he, we find out later he can eat and he can speak and he does all the things human beings do, but he's in a resurrection body and he comes right through the walls and he shows up. And they didn't say, well, who are you? They didn't think he was Casper the friendly ghost. They knew it was Jesus, and they're just absolutely stunned out of their minds to see the resurrected Jesus because several of their group had already seen him. Peter had seen him, and these women have talked about it, and these men from Emmaus, and they now had the privilege of being in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. However, Thomas was not there. Why not? Well, I think Thomas wasn't there because Thomas is an honest soul. His whole world had crashed. His hero was dead. This idea that he had heard about resurrection is a bunch of bunk. So he was probably in a funk. And so he was not there. He's probably just nursing his wounds. And Eeyore, after all, is probably just Eeyore. That's what he's doing. 
And here's what the Bible tells us in John chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, and by the way, the, the verb here means over and over again. They're saying to him over and over again, we have seen the Lord, we have seen the Lord, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands, his hands, the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side. And this again, it, it's, it's, it, it, the Greek says, I will not, I will not believe. It's a double negative. I will not, I will not. I refuse to believe it. Why? I don't believe in hocus pocus. I do not believe in religious gobbledygook. I am not naive like you guys are. I'm not an easy believer. I need proof. Thank you, Thomas. He needed evidence. He was courageous. He was a realist. He was honest. But he was also an empiricist. He needed evidence. He was not a mystic. He was not Pollyanna. He was not some naive soul that believed in pie in the sky, by and by stuff. He wasn't a bandwagon rider. He wasn't a yes man. He was not a fad follower. He was not a be quiet and stuff it kind of person. He was not an easy believer. He was the patron saint of skeptics. And thank God for him. Alfred Lord Tennyson, one of the greatest poets of all time, wrote this. There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. The one who really has faith is one who has the honest doubt. Thomas was a skeptic, no doubt, but he was sincere. He was an honest skeptic. There's a world of difference between honest and dishonest skeptics. An honest skeptic asks questions because they really want to know. A dishonest skeptic asks questions because they want to reinforce their biases. They're very different. An honest skeptic takes their own faults seriously. A dishonest skeptic takes other people's faults seriously, not their own. An honest skeptic struggles to make sense of the mysterious ways of God. An honest skeptic uses questions to gain knowledge. But a dishonest skeptic uses questions because they're just part of a game to stoke their ego. They're very, very, very different. An honest skeptic doesn't accept things because other people do. A dishonest skeptic doesn't accept things even if they're true. Big difference. I, you go, since I have the privilege of being among you here, there are two things you're going to hear me say a lot. Number one, the Bible is primarily history. I've taught philosophy in, of religion in, in, in universities or in, in community college. I've studied the 12 classic religions. And all religions ask people to do extraordinary things, sacrifice their lives. And I want to say, for what? Why? Why would you ever sacrifice? You have no proof of anything. Some guy in a cave said he got revelations from God and you're going to blow yourself up? Thinking you're going to paradise? 
Or someone under a Bodhi tree said he got an enlightenment and you're going to forego all pleasures of this world thinking you're going to get enlightened too? Where's the proof? There is no proof. There's one religion for which there's proof. And it's historical proof. And it's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith is based on something that happened in history, in time and place. It is a substantial basis for which to give your entire life because somebody walked out of a grave and was seen by hundreds of people, maybe thousands, alive after he was crucified. That's proof. The second thing you will hear me say, because I despise these words, we're called part of the faith community. Drives me crazy. We're called people of faith. What does that mean? In our society, those are the stupid people, you know? The stupid people that believe in hocus pocus, that believe in the mystical crystals, that believe in this. No, I am not that. I am not. Here's what um, um, Thomas uh, Mark Twain said. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. No, that's not faith. Mencken, the, the, the cynical American editor, said, faith is an illogical belief in the incurrence of the impossible. No, it's not. Here's George Seaton in Miracle on 34th Street. Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. No, no, that's not faith. This is faith, John Stott. Faith is a reasoning trust, a trust which reckons thoughtfully and confidently upon the trustworthiness of God. That's faith. History is full of people, honest skeptics who have come to faith. John Newton was an honest skeptic. He was a slave ship owner. Can you think of a worse profession in the history of the world than to take people from Africa and sell them as slaves and you're the transport? But he came to Christ. And he then said he called himself that old sinful sea captain. And he gave to us one of the greatest hymns ever, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. One of the most brilliant people our world has produced is C.S. Lewis. He was a professor at Oxford University. He was a committed atheist, trained by an atheist, had no belief in God. And he intellectually, as he studied Jesus, said this, and these are his own words, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. He says, I did not want to believe in Christianity. I hated it. I did not even believe in God. But intellectually, I was forced into it when I looked at the evidence. There are hundreds and thousands of people. I could name you name after name of people who were committed atheists, who as they looked at particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything changed. Why? Because it was powerful. Well, that's not the last time we meet Thomas. We meet him again. Because one week after Easter on Sunday, Jesus shows up again, and Thomas is with his buddies this time. Now, Jesus didn't have to show up. I mean, he's making multiple appearances over and over again over the next month or two. He could have said, hey, Thomas, you go stew in your melancholy juices or said, hey, oh, you doubter, go wallow in your doubts. But that's not what happened. Jesus showed up. 
Listen to what the Bible says. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Well, what did Jesus do? Well, the first thing Jesus did, he showed up. He didn't have to show up but he chose to show up. And then Jesus spoke up. Now, if I was Jesus, I would say, shame on you, Thomas. He didn't say shame on you, Thomas. He said, peace be to you, Thomas. He didn't dislike Thomas. He loved Thomas. And then he singles out Thomas. And then he says, Thomas, come on. I know you need evidence. And that's okay, Thomas, because your mind does need evidence. Come, 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 Thomas. Look, look at my hands here lifts up his shirt or whatever, and shows this huge wound in his side. Says, Thomas, you can put your hand in there if you want. It's still fresh. It's only been a week. And then he says, Thomas, come on. Get with the program. Stop. Stop your doubting. Believe. Now, what does is, what is Thomas, what does this tell us about God? God will go to unimaginable lengths to reach us. He will humble himself in order to honor us. He will suffer himself in order to save us. He will set apart his dignity in order to show us his love. He will come as a baby. He will live as a servant and he will die as a criminal to reach us. Some people have shaken their fists at God, but he'll meet you there. Some have dabbled in the occult and he will meet you there. Some have been addicted to drugs and alcohol, but God will meet you there. Some have messed up morally, but God will meet you there. Some have asked a million questions, but God will meet you there. Some have bought into false religion, but God will meet you there. There's no place you have been. There's nothing you can do that God will not reach you there. No place you can go. And there's only one sin that will keep you out of heaven. Only one. Self-righteousness. If you say to God, I don't need the righteousness of Jesus. I can do it pretty well on my own. It's the only thing that will, will keep us out. And that's very, very sad. You see, God is not put off by skeptics. And the truth of the Bible, which is so different than any other religion, is Christianity is not a story of us finding God. It's the story of God finding us. God is in search of us. We didn't find God. The Bible tells us clearly none of us seek God. God seeks us. How can you imagine a God who created us and against whom we have been so, so bad that he would come and seek us out? That is our God. That is the God of Thomas in the Bible, and this Thomas as well. Well, when Thomas saw Jesus, and now the empirical evidence is standing right in front of him. He could smell him. He can touch him. He heard him. He saw him. I don't think he tasted him, but he got everything else in there. <laughs> and he goes, <gasps> my Lord. And my God, 
He got it. No one else in human history to this point had gotten it like Thomas. I know who you are. You're my Lord and you're my God. Oh, that's amazing. Well, do you know what happened to Thomas? The Bible doesn't tell us, but church history tells us that after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, the disciples were in Jerusalem for a while and the church started to blossom in Jerusalem. But then persecution broke out and the apostles had to flee. Thomas fled east. He went, first of all, to Iraq, and then he went to Iran, and then he went to India. And there are very, very strong traditions that he died in India as a martyr. Do you know how? He was speared in the chest. That's kind of ironic. The very one to whom God, Jesus said, come on, Thomas, look where the spear got me. That's how he went on his way to heaven, also through a spear. Well, the story of Thomas doesn't end there. Because Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me, Thomas, you believe. Good job. But blessed are those who did not see me. They have believed because of you. Because you had the audacity to doubt. Because you had the audacity to ask for empirical evidence. Because you were a courageous realist. Because you were an honest soul. Because of that, Thomas, you have given to the world one of the greatest gifts, the historical account of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas, you believed, but because you saw. Now you go tell the story and you write it down so that generations to come, though we can't be there in person, the record is so reliable and you are so reliable that they will believe because of what you said. Thomas, just a name selected by Jesus, a a courageous, a realist, a pessimist, if you will, Eeyore, who who was was curious and wouldn't let a, a question that needed to be asked go unasked. He was an honest skeptic who who needed evidence to be convinced. But once he received that evidence, once he was convinced, he was committed for the rest of his life. All because of the gospel. Here is the gospel. The apostle Paul, one of the greatest followers of Jesus, stated it this way. Here's the gospel that I presented to you and that you believed and on which you've taken your life stand. Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Or I could say it this way. Jesus died for our sins, according to the history of the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day, according to the historical account of the scriptures. That's the gospel. There's no better day in all of the yearly calendar to reaffirm our faith in Jesus Christ than this day, the day we celebrate his resurrection from the dead. What does it take? 
Well, it takes, first of all, uh, an acknowledgement that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. And anyone who has a, even a, a modicum of, of understanding, if it was ever looked in the mirror, if you ever look into a mirror of your own soul, you realize we don't have a prayer before God. Our righteousness, the Bible says, is really has filthy rags. But then you realize that the only righteous person who has ever touched down on planet Earth, he not only lived here and lived among us, but he died for our sins. He took all of the, 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 our sin. Uh, he embodied it. The Bible says he became sin. Can you imagine your shame, your guilt, all the rotten stuff we've all done? He felt every bit of it, and he took it, and he paid for it in full. And now he says, here's the gift I'll give you. If you give me your unrighteousness, I'll give you my righteousness. Can you think of a gift so great? And how do you get it? Six times in the passage on Thomas, it uses the word believe. All God is asking is not that we clean up our act, not that we act all righteous, but that we simply believe that this offer you give based on my understanding of who I am and who you are and what you've done, you will accept me if I say, just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, and that you asked me to come to you. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Let's pray. Oh Heavenly Father, what a what a what a story. Oh what a wonderful man our dear Thomas is. Thank you for his doubts. Thank you for showing us with incredible evidence that you're alive and that you love us and that you wish to give your righteousness to us. Oh, Father in heaven, may this body be full of people not only who have received your righteousness by faith, but who also by faith live it and share it. As we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.